Take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. We're reading verses 1 through 3, very familiar passage. Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race set, that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for the privilege to handle your word. And Lord, it's important because at the beginning of this new year, we need to set our sights on what you would have us to do. And we need to determine, Lord, that we're going to run that race that's set before us. And I pray that 2024 will be a, a time when we do that. And in doing that, we will reach new heights for you and bring glory to your name. So, Lord, teach us today from, your word, from the Word how you want us to live, how you want us to walk, how you want us to run in that way that's set before us. Guide the thoughts of each one today. Speak to each heart. If anybody here does not know Jesus as their Savior, I pray the day might be the day that they, they trust Him. Thank you, Lord, for your enablement that you will give to bring the message. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've probably all heard the expression, life is a marathon, not a sprint. The expression implies that life is, is not a short race, but a long race, requiring endurance and determination, and that in a sense is true. But there, there are over 800 marathons each year all around the world. A marathon. A marathon is a race that's 26.2 miles long. In fact, to be accurate, it's 26 miles, 385 yards long. It's based on a legend of a Greek messenger who ran to Athens declaring victory. And he said, in a, sen in a sense, we, he, after he got there, he said, we won. That was following the Battle of Marathon in 490 B.C. The distance he ran is said to be 26.2 miles long. Some marathons you might not know about, we're going to look at this morning, some you do know about, like the famous Boston Marathon, or locally, the Flying Pig Marathon. <laughs> That's some name, you know. The Flying Pig Marathon in Cincinnati. But the ones you might not know of are the Antarctic Ice Marathon. That is run in an, in an average temperature of minus four degrees Fahrenheit. It's a few hundred miles from the South Pole, so it's way down there and it's pretty cold. Another one is the Big Five Marathon. That's run through an African game reserve in Africa, the Big Five Marathon. Then there's the French Riviera Marathon. It's run on the southeast coast of France. And then there's the Inca Trail Marathon. They run that through the Inca Empire sites 
in the Western South America. And then the highest marathon of all is the Mount Everest Marathon. They start at the base camp and they run 26.2 miles in that high place. Also, there's one I thought was very unusual, and that is the North Pole Marathon. How would you like to run in that? In order to be a participant in that, they fly you in in a helicopter. And uh, you run on 6 to 12 foot thick ice through that whole marathon. That's the North Pole Marathon. And then there are many other races which are not called marathons, some shorter, but a lot of them which are longer than a marathon, longer than 26.2 miles. One of those I read about is the Western States 100 Endurance Run. It's 100 miles long, and it's run in California. The temperatures for that run will, will, will range from 20 degrees Fahrenheit to 110 degrees Fahrenheit. The first man and the first woman to cross the finish line within 24 hours receives the Wendell Roby Cup, a perpetual trophy with their name engraved. Perpetual trophy means that it's passed on from year to year to a different person, but their name is put on that trophy. Also, they receive the Bronze Western States Cougar Trophy. Now, all runners finishing under 24 hours receive the Western States uh, endurance runs silver belt, belt buckle. So you get a silver belt buckle. Then all runners finishing within 24 hours and under 30 hours receive a, a Western States endurance run bronze belt buckle. <laughs> well, I don't know if I'd go 100 miles just to get a belt buckle, <laughs> but uh, that's what they do. Today we are considering a much more important race. It's a race we run for Jesus after we trust him as our personal savior, after salvation. It's called, we're, the title of the message is, The Christian Race. It's not a 100-mile endurance run, and it's not a marathon. You do not train for it before you run it. You, comp- you, you, comp- you, don't, you don't compete against others in a, set in, in a certain time frame or a certain distance, and then wait till the next marathon, which will be run maybe sometimes months later, you might enter another marathon. No, the race for Jesus, the Christian race, is a race that you run until you die. Once you enter the race at salvation, you continue until until God takes you home to heaven. The scriptures use different words, I believe, to refer to this race. The word race is only mentioned twice in the New Testament, referring to that. And that is in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Wherefore, seeing we are also compassed about with so great a cloud of witness, let us lay aside every weight, the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Another place where it's called race is in 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 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. It says, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize, so run that ye may obtain. And then it's called a course. The Bible says in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, Paul said, I want to finish my course with joy. And then the word path or paths is used, I believe, to refer to this race. Proverbs 3, 6 says we walk on directed paths. 
Uh, Psalm 119, verse 105, says the word of God is a light unto my path. That path is that race that we're running. Proverbs 2, verse 9, it's called a good path. Proverbs 4, verse 18, it's called the path of the just. Proverbs 5, verse 6, it's called the path of life. Psalm 23, verse 3, it's called the path of righteousness. Psalm 25, verse 10, it's the paths of the Lord. And Hebrews 12, verse 13, it's called, or verse 15, called straight paths. So we run the, the race, we run on a path, and this path is a straight path, a path of life, a path of the just. Also, it's called the way. And I think that race is referred to in the word way. The Bible says in Psalm 139, verse 24, the way everlasting, 1830. His way is perfect. Psalm 27, 11, teach me thy way, O Lord. Psalm 37, 23, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. The steps, the walk, the path of a good man is ordered by the way, Lord. The way of a good man is ordered by the Lord. Psalm 107, verse 7, he led them forth by the right way. Psalm 119, verse 30, the way of truth. Psalm 119, 32, the way of thy commandments. Psalm 143, verse 8, it caused me, not to, caused me to know the way wherein I should walk. Proverbs 8, verse 20, the way of righteousness. Proverbs 10, verse 29, the way of the Lord is strength to the upright. Proverbs 12, verse 28, the way of the, of the righteous is life. The, path, the pathway thereof in, is in the pathway thereof there is no death. So this race, this path, this way is a, is a place of righteousness and there is no death. So you don't die on the race. And not, you don't have to die physically, but you don't really die because Jesus said those who believe in him will never die. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, so you're forever living. You have forever life here, so you never die. Jeremiah 6, verse 16, ask for the old paths. Where is the good way? So the path and the good way. He said, ask for the old path. Wherein is the good way? By the way, all this new things they're coming up with today, things that are they say are approved, that didn't used to be approved, and we've been sort of backward and and, you know, we just don't think right. But God says, no, choose the old way. God's way is old, and it's still the good way. It's the true way. It's the good way. Matthew 22, verse 16, the way of God is truth. Second uh, Peter 2, verse 2, it's the way of truth. Verse 15, the right way. Verse 21, the way of righteousness. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So it's the way following Jesus. And then the Bible says in Matthew 7, verse 14, Narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. So if you're in God's race, if you're following God's way, you're taking his course, you're taking his path, the Bible says it'll be a narrow path, and few will be on that path. In other words, most people on the broad path leading to hell. In contrast to God's good path in which we are to run or walk, there is a wrong path and there is a wrong way. The wrong path is mentioned in Job 8, verse 13. It says the paths of all that forget God. If you're on that path, that wrong path, you don't think much about God. 
It's the path of all those that forget God. Isaiah 59, verse 8, he calls it the crooked paths of when there, where there is no peace. The crooked path. Which path are you on? The right way or the wrong way? You on the right path or the wrong path? And then there's the wrong way. So there's the wrong path that's crooked and people forget God on it. There's the wrong way. The Bible says in Jeremiah 23, 22, it's the evil way. That's also mentioned in Jeremiah 25, 5, Jeremiah 26, 3, 35, 15, 36, 3, and 7, and Jonah 3, 8, and 10. All those mention that same term. It says it's the evil way, the evil way. Determine which way you're on. Determine which race you're in. And that's, he says it's the evil way. Ezekiel 3, 18 and 19 and 13, 22 and 33, 8 and 9 calls it the wicked way. The evil way, the wicked way. Psalm 1, 6, the way of the ungodly shall perish. It's the way of the ungodly and it will perish. Quite a contrast to the way of the Lord where there is no death. He says the way of the ungodly, they will perish. Also, Psalm 1.6 says, the way of the ungodly shall perish. I just mentioned that. Proverbs 14, verse 12, and Proverbs 16, verse 25. There is a way that seemeth right unto man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. So God's way, no death. The devil's way, the wrong way. It says, it seems right unto a man. A lot of people in that way. A lot of people think, I'm all right. There's nothing wrong. You know, I'm living a good life. I'm being blessed. I think I'll be okay. And they, they don't, they see, it seems to be the right path, but God says no. It leads to the ways of death. Psalm 7, verse 13 says, Broad is that way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be that go in thereat. So there's the wrong path, the wrong way. There's the right path, the right way. There's the wrong race, and there's the right race. Which race are you in? So the teaching of Scripture is that there are two ways or paths. You are on one of those paths. Which way are you on? The broad way leads to destruction. It is characterized as evil, wicked, crooked, ungodly, forgetting God. Seems right, but it's really the way of death. And most people are on it. And by the way, it's led by the devil. How do we know that? The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, we walked accord, walk according, according to the prince of the power of the air. You were dead in sins, and you walked according to the prince of the power of the air. The devil was leading you. He was making you think, it's okay. He was making you think, I'm enlightened, when actually you're walking in darkness. And so that path is led by the devil. The narrow way leads to life. It's characterized by good as good. It's characterized as the way of truth, the way of righteousness, the way of his commandments, the right way, the perfect way, the way of the Lord. It's a way ordered by the Lord, and few are on it, but it's led by Jesus. It's led by Jesus. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 says, Be ye followers of God as dear children. If you're following that path, if you're in that race, you're led by the Lord Jesus. And John chapter 10, verse, verse uh, 2, I think it is, and there's other verses there. No, it's verse 27, I think. And he says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they what? Follow me. 
So those on the right path, on the wrong, right way, they're following Jesus. And so that means that the narrow way is the race we are in as Christians. That's the Christian race. It's the narrow race. As we look ahead to 2024, we should desire to be running for the Lord on the way ordered by the Lord. Running for the Lord on the way ordered by the Lord. So let's consider some things about our race for Jesus, our Christian race. We see it in Hebrews chapter 12. Look with me. First of all, the motivation for the race. We are to be motivated to run this race. What is our motivation? He mentions some things here we want to look at. First of all, we're to be motivated by those who've gone before us. As mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, it's this, the, the, the people of faith. Hebrews 11 is sometimes called the Christian's Hall of Faith, or the Hall of Fame, or Faith Hall of Fame. And uh, so Hebrews 11. And he mentions some, a great cloud of witnesses. You notice verse 12. Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. It doesn't mean that people up in heaven are looking down on us. Some people say that's what it means. I don't think it does. He has just mentioned, he's just told us chapter 11. He's told us about all these people. And then he says, wherefore, seeing we are compassed about so, so great a cloud of witnesses. These witnesses have gone on before us. They have told us how to live by faith. And so he mentions all those. Let's look at those that he mentions. He mentions Abel. That was the very beginning, you know. Cain killed Abel. Why? Abel was doing the right thing. Abel was offering the sacrifice God told him to offer. Cain knew that. He knew exactly what God required, but he brought it the fruit of the ground, and he just rebelled against God. And so Abel did what he did by faith. Also Enoch. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Enoch was a, a man of faith. Then he mentions Noah. Wow, what a man of faith. Uh, Noah, all the world was against him. And he preached for 100 years. And only his family was saved. And so he was a great man of faith. And then there was Abraham. Abraham believed God. Even when he was 100 years old, he, God told him, I'm going to give you a child. And he finally believed that, and God gave him a child. And then Sarah, she was 90 years old. And then he mentions Isaac, and he mentions Jacob, and Joseph, and Moses, and Joshua, and Rahab, and Gideon, and Samson, and Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets, and others, and others who suffered. Let's think about some of the things he mentioned in chapter 11, that others suffered, not mentioning their names. He says that they suffered mockings all down through the ages. There have been Christians who stood for their faith. They stayed in the race. They did what was right. They followed the way. And they experienced mockings from other people. If people have mocked you for your faith, you don't stand alone. There are a lot of people down through the ages that have experienced the same thing. And then scourgings. People scourged. That happened in Bible times. You remember, they were scourged. Jesus himself was scourged. The cat of nine tails, they were whipped with that. And they weren't able to go over 40 lashes, so sometimes they would usually go stop at 39 to make sure they didn't go over 40. And so he, they, they experienced scourgings. And then he mentions bonds, and he mentions imprisonment, and then he mentions stoned. 
we know that one was stoned, and that was Stephen, the first martyr. He was stoned. Can you imagine what that must have felt like? Here he is doing what's right, and they're going to stone him for it, but he continued to do what was right, and he didn't ask them to stop. I've changed my mind or anything like that. They stoned him. Terrible thing for big stones to be thrown at you and knock you down and crush your head and and the blood spilling out. That That was Stephen. He was stoned. And he mentions that as a motivation to us. Don't give up. Don't quit. Many people before you have experienced this. And then sawn asunder. Sawn asunder. Wow. I can't imagine what that must have been like actually laid down and then sawn to. They say, tradition says, that's what happened to the prophet Isaiah. He was sawn asunder. And then said, slain with a sword. And then some wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy, God says. God says, I knew what was going on. I have a purpose, but the world is really not worthy of these special people who followed me and obeyed me. And so motivation for the race were those who've gone on before us. And then he mentions someone else. This is the greatest, of course, and that's Jesus. Hebrews chapter 2, or 12, verse 2, it says, Looking unto Jesus, run with patience the race set before you, remembering those who've gone on. They didn't give up. Don't you give up. And uh, even somebody like Samson, there's bad things about Samson. But what did Samson do at the end of his life? He finally, he trusted the Lord for that final victory. And God mentions him as a person of faith. But uh, the greatest is Jesus looking unto Jesus as their motivation for the race. It says this, for the joy set before him endured the cross. He knew what was coming. Now we can identify with that in a sense a little bit because we know what's coming. We're going to be with Jesus. We're going to have a brand new home. We're going to have a brand new body. We're going to live forever with him. Why give up when you're going through rough time down on this earth? Why throw in the towel? Because Jesus didn't, and so he endured temptation. He looked for the joy that set before him. He endured the cross. Now, what does that mean? I believe that he said this. The joy that set before me is that multitudes, millions of people are going to be saved, and I'll be able to rescue them from hell, and they'll be able to live for me with me forever in eternity. Jesus looked for the joy at the joy that was set before him. And so he says, it's worth it. I'll endure the cross. I'll suffer the pain because it's worth it. Also, I might believe one of the other joys that set before him was at being able to say, I did the Father's will. You remember on the cross, he said it was so bad, He's, or before the cross when he was thinking about it, it was so bad, he said, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But then he said, nevertheless, not as I will, but thy will be done. And that joy that was set before him was to finish what he did on the cross and uh, then and be able to say, I've done your will, Father, 
and he did. And then it says despising the shame. Despising the shame meant he thought little of the shame. He thought little of the price of shame when he considered the purchase of salvation. It was worth it. And so he despised the shame. And then there's another thing we want to look at, and that's the method. But before we do, we want to say this. If Jesus is willing to do all that for us, should we not be willing to run the race set before us? You might say, well, 2023 was a rough year, and I don't know what 2024 is going to hold. But you can say this. It doesn't matter what it holds. I will not quit. I will not quit. I'll serve Jesus. After all he did for me, surely I can stay on track for him in that race. And then there's the method of the race. The method of the race is seen in verse 1. It says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. How do you run the race? How do you run the race that's before you in 2024 successfully? Lay aside every weight and the sin that does so easily beset you. I think those are two different things. Laying aside the weight. A weight is not necessarily a bad thing, but it's an encumbrance. And so people who run the race, they don't wear uh, a lot of clothing to keep them warm. They, don't, they just wear bare necessities so they can run, with, run the race and not be weighted down. We who run the Christian race, we have to be careful that we're not weighted down with the affairs of this life. We must be careful that we don't let things weigh us down. There might be things that are good in of themselves, such as ambitions. You have personal ambitions, but your personal ambition shouldn't weigh you down from serving Jesus. You have hobbies that you like to do, but those shouldn't keep you from serving Jesus. You have sports that you like to participate in or watch or go to see, but those should not keep you from serving Jesus. Some people have asked me, uh, I've had some ask me, if we arranged it, would you go to a football game with us for the Bengals? I said, no. Why? Because they're on Sunday. (laughs) No, I wouldn't even think about it. I mean, that's, this is much more important than a football game, and especially the Bengals. <laughs> no, I don't mean that. They've done pretty well. But, <laughs> but, you know, things can weigh you down. They can become priorities. They shouldn't be priorities. Friendships can weigh you down. Friendships are good, but never if they keep you from serving Jesus. Eating can weigh you down more than one way. Resting can weigh you down. Sure, you need rest, but you don't need to be slothful. You don't need that. And so the Lord says, lay aside the weights. And then he says this, and the sin that does so easily beset you. Now, I'm not going to mention sins today that easily beset you. It's not necessary because everyone here knows your sin. Everyone here knows the sin that easily besets you. You know what it is. That's tripped you up before. You know what it is that it's harder for you to say no to. The sins that easily beset you. You should say no to those things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, which mentions race, it says this in verse 26, 
I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Who wrote that? Paul wrote that. One of the greatest Christians that ever lived. Greatest missionary probably that ever lived. He wrote that. What's he saying? He said, I have problems with the flesh. And so what do I have to do? I have to keep under my body and bring it into subjection. My body, my sinful flesh desires certain things, but I say no to the flesh and I buffet my body. I bring it under subjection. I say no to my body. Why? Because I want to run that race for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I was reading one commentary. He said like this. He said, you think of, uh, of uh, Eve in the garden. God said, don't eat of that fruit. But he said, I can just imagine before Eve ate that fruit, she walked by it. Maybe one day, next day, she walked by it again. Next day, she just stood there looking at it, <laughs> thinking, boy, that, that sure does look good. And then he drew this conclusion. I wrote down his quote. He said this, do not, do not hang around forbidden fruit. <laughs> That's pretty good, isn't it? Do not hang around forbidden fruit. The sin that does so easily beset us, lay that aside. And then he says this, as far as the method, that's part of the method, but here's another part. Run with patience the race set before you. The race, that's God's way. That's God's path. That's God's course. He says run with patience the race set before you. Patience means staying under the load. Staying true under the load. Pressures mount on you. Temptations to just give it up. But they, you stay under the load. You, you're patient. You're persistent. You're determined. You're steadfast. And so he says in running that race, the method of running that race is you must run with patience the race that's set before you. And then he adds this, considering Jesus. Consider Jesus. When you feel weary and ready to give up, ready to faint in your mind, consider Jesus. He says in Hebrews chapter 12, For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your mind. The temptation is to be weary, to faint, to give up, say, I can't do it anymore. It's not worth it. But what did Jesus do? The Bible says he considered it, Consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. I mean, they were against him all his lifetime. And then on the cross, they hung him on the cross. They mocked him. They made fun of him. But he endured all the way until he said, it's finished. It's finished. And may God help us to do the same. Stay true all the way till we can say with Paul, I've finished my course. I've finished that race. And our method for the race should always include remembering Jesus and how he stayed steadfast and how he remained true all the way to the end. And then we might add one other thing. And that is, confess your sins. Through this race, you're going to have times when you fail. Every Christian does. In fact, in 1 John chapter 1, it says to him that think. It says, if you say that you have not sinned, you deceive yourselves and the truth is not in you. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins 
and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So running 2024, God says, here's the path, walk in it. Here's the way, walk in this way. Here's the race, stay on this, in this race, stay true to the course. This is the way I want you to go. And then we have to remember that Jesus wants us to finish all the way. He says, if you walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins. And then he says, now when you do fail, confess your sins, and he'll forgive you. So as you go along this race, you're going to fail. We're going to fail. We're going to come times in 2024, probably every day, we we'll have to say, Lord, I'm sorry. How much, is your, how much does your confession take? How much, how, when is it you, that most of your confession takes place? Is it at night when you go to bed? Or is it all day long? For me, it's all day long. For me, it's, sorry, Lord. I shouldn't have thought that way. And uh, for me, it's just something happens. Maybe it's a mind thought. Maybe it's something I said I shouldn't have and uh, I didn't do that I should have done. And I, I confess. I tell the Lord about it. Confession means you agree with God. The Holy Spirit says, that's wrong. And you say, Lord, you're right. That's wrong. I'm sorry. Forgive me. And the Lord says, he does. Every time. That's why 1 John 1, 9 is sometimes called the Christian's bar of soap. And that is, he'll cleanse you. He'll cleanse you daily. And so the method for running the race has to include the confession that we need. And then the mission of the race. The mission of the race is this. Why run? I mean, what's your goal? Why should we run this race anyway? Why should we stay true to the Lord in 2024? Well, let me give you some reasons. First of all, negatively. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul said in verse 25, And every man that striveth the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. I keep under my body and bring it in subjection, lest that by any means, when I preach to others, I myself should be a castaway. He's saying this. Here is my, here is my uh, mission. Here is my goal. And that is that I won't be a castaway. And what does the word castaway mean? The word castaway means disapproved. It means set on the shelf. You run the race and you mess up really bad and uh, you don't confess it, you don't get it right, and the Lord says, all right, I can't use you right now. He puts you on the shelf. You're disapproved. Sometimes it's so bad that he says, all right, I'm taking you home. No more opportunities, I'm taking you home. And many Christians have died because of that reason. And Paul said, my mission is this, to make sure that I do not become a castaway. After I've preached to all these people, I become a castaway. In my life, I remember some of those. I could tell you about them, but I won't this morning. But I remember people that I knew who became castaways. And they displeased the Lord, and they didn't get it right. And the Lord just set them on the shelf. And the Lord sometimes took them home. 
I don't want that to ever happen to me. I hope you don't want that to happen to you. And so let's make sure that our mission is we don't become a castaway. Also, I think his mission is this, that, he, that our mission should be that I might please my Savior. 2 Timothy 2, verse 3 and 4 says, Endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, not entangling ourselves with the affairs of this life. And, and that it says that I might please him who had chosen me to be a soldier. Our mission is to please the Savior. Please him. And hear him say, as he did in Matthew 25, to the, as he illustrates it, a person had five talents and a person had two talents. And they used those talents for the Lord. The person had one talent, didn't use them at all. But he used those talents and he invested them for his master. And the master says this, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I'll make thee ruler over many things. He said the same thing to the man who had five talents as he said to the man who had two talents. And that is God blesses us all differently, but God expects us to use what he gave us to serve him. And so we should be, our desire, our mission should be at the end of our life, we can hear the Lord say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Another mission is that I might obtain a crown. Some people have said, Oh, we shouldn't serve the Lord to get a crown. Why not? God says, I want to give you one. So if God wants to give us one, why shouldn't we desire that? And God wants us to have a crown. The crowns that God gives are incorruptible crowns. Now, there are corruptible crowns, such as that silver belt buckle we mentioned, or that bronze belt buckle, or that trophy, or whatever it might be. Such are men's applause or pride's accomplishments, those are the the crowns that are corruptible. They fade away. In heaven, they won't mean anything. In heaven, they won't be a road for uh, baseball players who hit all these home runs. There won't be a road for football players who were great as a quarterback. There won't be any of that stuff. That's all foolishness to the Lord. The Lord says those are corruptible crowns. But incorruptible crowns, God wants to give us. The Bible mentions five of them. The runner's crown is called the incorruptible crown. And that's in 1 Corinthians 9, 25. We read it a while ago, so we won't read it again. But that's the one who says no to the flesh. I keep under my body. I bring it into subjection. It says no to the flesh. So if you have problems with the flesh and you say no to the flesh, the Lord says you just might have that runner's crown, that incorruptible crown. Then there's the soul winner's crown. Paul mentioned in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 that the Thessalonians were his crown of rejoicing. And maybe that means because he led them to the Lord, they were his crown of rejoicing. So maybe that's the soul winner's crown that God will give to us. Then there's the watcher's crown. The Bible says it's given to those that love his appearing. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 8, it's called the crown of righteousness. Paul said, I've fought a good fight. I've finished my course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness and to all and also to all them that love his appearing. So if you just look forward to Jesus coming, you think about it all the time and you want to see him someday. The Lord says, I see that desire and I'm going to give a crown for that. And that's a, no doubt a, corrupt, a crown that will not corrupt. 
And then there's what's called the lover's crown. James chapter 1. It's for those who endure temptation. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life. And then he says to the, that he's promised to all them that love him. So if you love Jesus, not just say you do, but you really do. You really love Jesus. You think about him. You talk to him. And you praise him. You, you love him. If you really love Jesus, God says there's a, a crown for you, the crown of life. And then I believe there's what we call the pastor's crown. I hope to get that someday. I'm not sure. That's up to God. But in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4, it's called the crown of glory. It's given to elders, the pastors who feed the flock, taking the oversight thereof willingly. They're not, not for filthy lucre. They don't do it for the money. They do it of a ready mind. They're an examples to the flock. And so that's the crown, the pastor's crown that he could get. God has other crowns as well, I believe. But I say, I say we stay on mission. Our mission are, is, is that we will accomplish this. We will receive a crown from the Lord. Then another thing is this, that we might be a trophy of God's grace in the ages to come. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, says it like this. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, all of you who know Jesus as your Savior, that God's done that for you. And here's the reason. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. I believe if we run with, with patience the race that's set before us, we follow the Lord in his way, in his path, his course, we do what God wants us to do, then God's going to be just going to the fact that we're able to do that for him is grace. And it'll be on display for, as a trophy of God's grace forever and ever and ever. It says, for the ages to come might, might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness to us through Christ Jesus. Don't you want to be a person who shows by your life that's displayed in heaven that you have been a recipient of God's grace and goodness? You've served him faithfully. And the Lord says, I believe that should be one of our missions to, to bring glory to Jesus Christ. Yes, running for Jesus is not a marathon. It's a race for God's, of God, for God's glory from salvation until we're taken home to heaven. In that race, we're to stay on course. We're to stay in the path that God has set before us, making sure that we follow his way, which is good right, perfect, righteous, true, and directed by him. And we strive to do that by God's grace and God's strength and God's direction. 2024 will be a great year. Let's make it a Christian race that God is, is, is glorified by, a Christian race that pre pleases him. And in 2024, we will reach new heights for Jesus and the result will be glory to God who did it all for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you today for reminding us of the race that's set before us. Thank you, Lord, that we are participants in God's race. We didn't get there by paying a fee and joining a marathon. 
We didn't get there by being helicoptered in. We got there by the grace of God when you saved us. Lord, you put us in the race. Help us to stay true. Help us to be like Jesus, who endured the cross, despising the shame, went all the way until he could say, it is finished. Help us to be true to you this year, we've asked in Jesus' name. Amen.